Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Piercy Alley and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Annie Delaney about informal workforce. Welcome to the program. Hi, Beth. Really great to join you. How are you? Good. I'm great. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, sure. So I've um, been an academic for about 10 years. Um, and prior to that, I actually been a, a trade unionist and practitioner for a long time before that and a campaign activist. So my background is probably, you know, longer in activism and working in trade unions than um, in academia. So, uh, for example, I worked in the textile, clothing and footwear union in Australia, in Melbourne for a long time. And I worked um, working with home-based workers or referred to as garment outworkers in um, Australia and campaigned for many years to secure rights for um, home workers um, equal to factory workers. So um, so a lot of my work has been very practical oriented and and really um, focused on labour rights, essentially, and looking at who are the, and particularly focused on women and the most marginalised and vulnerable workers in our communities in Australia and globally. So um, and a lot of that work has been done through trade unions and through women's organisations, global women's organisations that I've been aligned with. So that's really informed, I guess, my research agenda. How do I, that transition into academia, doing a PhD was, a lot of that work was based around my practice and and looking at, or well, how do you, inform a research agenda through practice through making improvements for workers for working women's lives so that's been a big motivation of my life and my work yeah that's really interesting you don't hear a lot about uh what's it called you know when people sort of do work at home and um yeah home working yeah home working yeah no you don't hear very much about that at all do you so um, yeah, well, I want to go um, tell us a little Sorry. bit about the the rights and and how you actually improved their their wages in comparison to factory workers. Yeah, so a lot of the work is first getting them recognised as workers because basically how our employment relations systems in many countries work is that home work has been around since early industrialisation, but over and it's been I guess in trends of um, being very popular particularly in the garment sector but in many industries where homework has been this group of um, 
a whole, you know, a really significant workforce for the sector that's really at the bottom of the pile that's um, worked on peace rates, very low peace rates, had often no recognition in law. Um, and Australia is quite exceptional in having early recognition of home-based workers um, in their industrial relations systems under the awards, etc. And there's a, a number of countries around the world that have um, that given home workers that recognition. But as we've seen in that since the 70s or 80s, a lot of countries and the globalization and neoliberal capitalism have pulled back those rights or reduced that recognition. So a lot of those workers maybe used to be recognized in the in the labor regulation and etc. and then lost that recognition. So a lot of the issues around home-based work and other types of informal work, maybe caring or domestic work, is about giving, firstly, recognising they exist. They're in the workforce, they're in global supply chains, they're in whole range of employment practices, but often not recognised in terms of regulation and also not recognised by the employers giving them the work. And it certainly would affect women because it's something that women can do while they're actually caring for, for children or other people at home, isn't it? Clearly. So this kind of combination of the social reproduction role of women, so, you know, all this unpaid work of caring, the domestic work, cooking, cleaning, often looking after vulnerable relatives, elderly parents, disabled people, doing things in the community, the local community, all that social reproduction is not counted in our global, in our national economies as a contribution. So many of the women who are responsible for childcare and other types of responsibilities, other caring responsibilities, um, are still forced to work. So they have to do this, you know, what we call the, re, the, the productive work, the paid work that's recognised um, with, alongside their um, socially reproductive work. So women find ways, you know, use incredible ingenuity and survival skills to find ways to be able to meet both those needs. So often they end up doing work from home, which we've all become more familiar with under COVID, um, where they combine those, you know, essential role they perform with making money for the family to survive. So a lot of my work has really focused on, okay, how do how do we get greater recognition for these both types of work, the socially reproductive work, which is unrecognized but essential for society, and the productive work of um, producing goods for capital, um, but also get, getting more rights and improved conditions, working conditions for that work. So what was it that inspired you to study women in the informal world of work? Yes, so as I said earlier, so it's very much informed by my trade union and labour activism. Um, working for, you know, improving conditions of home-based workers in Australia, in the garment sector, um, and joining with global organisations, first HomeNet International and then Homeworkers Worldwide International. We worked to get um, an international labour organisation convention for home-based workers, which 
was achieved in 1996, which seems a long time ago. And so a lot of that work I did in terms of collective organising and campaigning against global brands and local brands to improve the conditions of home workers in their supply chain as has become infused and central to my research work too. And then I guess there's two parts to that. The first part is about collective organisation, how you support, you know, marginalised women workers in the informal sector to become more, more collectively organised, form unions or other types of organisations. And secondly, how do you hold corporations to account for enabling their supply chain to employ those women in very, very poor conditions and, and increasing their vulnerability. So those two parts I've tried to bring together in how I research this area. How are women in the informal workforce impacted by lockdown? Um, so there's a lot of, I mean, I think what we're seeing across the experience globally that women have faced much more uh, shoulder much greater burden through COVID times because of those you know responsibilities they're in you know society expects them to perform through all those unpaid tasks particularly responsibility for childcare. Um, but so in the example I think you're referring to, I, I was recently looking at the context of India and looking at, I have been doing research in India for over 10 years um, and have a, I work closely with a lot of NGOs and unions there to support their work and to how to, I guess, engage in real practice on the ground and, and how that informs some research rather than um, research being very separate from that practice. Um, so I was interested to look at or well, what's going on in India in terms of COVID and the lockdown and restrictions and how is this impacted on informal women workers? And when I talk about informal women workers here, we're talking about women who are doing home-based work as I talked about, maybe sewing or making products. You know, domestic workers, might be doing bidding rolling, they might be working construction, they might be, there's a whole range of types of informal work where, um, and in India, it's um, estimated to be 90% of the workforce. So we're talking about this really huge percentage of the workforce that is maybe not regulated as work, their work's not regulated, or in practice, maybe there's some regulation, but they can't access those benefits and protections. So. Informal workers um, have been particularly disadvantaged through COVID lockdown. Firstly, if you look at home-based workers, the type I've been talking about in the garment and footwear sector, many of the global brands shut down production um, and, then, and then the direct employers giving the work to these women didn't pay them. Maybe they got paid by the brands, maybe they didn't. Um, so that's had a really big consequence in terms of production was shut down and the work was cut off. The other part is in terms of the national conditions in India where um, the Modi um, government um, did a very short notice hush um, announcement in four hours. They, sorry, they announced prior to the very hard lockdown um, a four hour notice 
that um, people had to um, go into lockdown. So a lot of workers working as domestic workers, as in villages all around India had no time to get to a place where they could maybe access food and shelter. So it had a very big consequence for many informal workers who were basically forced to um, leave their employer's home if they worked um, through an, an employer's house or and walk to along a village where they come from a long way away or they were in their own village in their own homes but had no access to any income and that had very serious repercussions for how they survived this lockdown time without very any assistance or minimal assistance from the government and certainly no assistance from the employers that they had maybe worked for many years giving you know very um you know a very industrial labor to those employers over that time so i think the consequence has been really harsh and we've seen you know big surveys recently conducted by women's organizations in india and researchers about the effects of covid on women workers and essentially we see they don't have savings they don't have access so they they have very little resources if things go wrong if their work is cut off or they can't access um, resources outside of their, their house. And so these very harsh conditions have really, ha women have had to be very resourceful, maybe find other ways to get, get some income, sell things, grow things if they have access to any land, or basically depend on money lenders to survive. So many of these women workers have had to go into debt sell their bangles, sell whatever they have to go into debt. And that's, you know, already we're talking about people who are very vulnerable in these communities and don't have bank accounts, don't have savings. So um, what we're seeing is the effects will be really amplifying the poverty that they're already experiencing, even though these people, many of these women, informal workers are employed, they don't, they barely have enough to get by each week. So obviously the COVID period has really had a huge impact and made their conditions so much harsher and more difficult. Uh, these workers are really invisible, aren't they? Because Oh, I was actually quite shocked when you said 90% of the workforce. If you know, if I if you had someone ever asked me, I would have said, oh, maybe 10, maybe 20%. But um, they're really invisible workers, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, so if you're talking about, you know, in India, which um, part of the focus, yeah, definitely, it's a very significant proportion of the workforce. So you'd expect you know, employment practices and government policy would be um, oriented towards some of that, those workers, given they're such a sizable part of the workforce, but that hasn't been happening. So, in fact, what we see is this, what I call this term invisibilisation, where women workers are not even seen as workers. And so if you don't see workers, if you don't, valor, don't valorise their work, if you don't see them as workers, then you don't see the necessity for regulation. You don't see the necessity for them to um, 
have their work counted as valuable in, in the in the economy. So this kind of, I guess, the political economy of informal informal work is really substantial in terms of it enables this systemic um, invisibilization to occur, particularly for women's work. So it enables the again the lack of recognition of the socially reproductive or that unpaid work and enables employers to talk about their women workers as they oh they're just housewives or they're just doing this for some pin money rather than they are workers like everyone else working 40 50 60 hours a week to get enough money for their families to survive and we shouldn't pretend that this is just something that happens in india we have a lot of informal work in Australia, in many countries, where people, um, I mean, the, the difference perhaps in Australia, we have a social security system, we've got a bit of a safety net. So in countries like India, where COVID has interrupted work, we, we see where there's a gap in terms of a lack of social security system is a really then workers pay the price. And I think what we also see is global firms really getting away with first extracting the value from these workers over many years and then no payback, no recognition of the consequences of their behaviour in pulling contracts, not paying suppliers and what that the implication in terms of the ethics of their behaviour is really significant in terms of um, the consequence for women workers. So again you know by not recognizing those women in their supply chain they're invisibilizing their labor they're not invisibilizing the value they extract from it because that's very tangible then they make a lot of profit but they're certainly invisibilizing the reality of them there in the supply chain the contribution they make and so what we see is this repeated pattern of women's work being devalorized to devalued not counted and the and that just makes women's lives much much harder it's already hard and it makes it harder again for them to do their work to just live their life to survive in their in their families and in their communities yeah so what are the conditions like um in, in factories and when uh, women are working at home so, I mean, look, I think I've been doing um, work in India for quite a while and I give, can give two short examples. One example in terms of informal work here, I've been working with leather footwear home workers who work for, um, they pay about five or six rupees to sew the uppers on the top, um, onto a sole of shoes. They're mainly men's shoes, the loafer style shoes that have, you know, quite upmarket, they're selling for a lot of money. Um, probably they sell in Australia for around $100, $150 a pair often, the brands sold here. And they, yeah, so they get about five, six rupees a pair. And they, if they're lucky, they make 10 pairs a day. So they're getting about a dollar Australian a day to do that work. Um, so it's, you know, very low paid. Um, so, and they only get as much as they do the work by piece. So it's, you know, it's, and they have, they rely on a middle person who brings the work to them in their villages and then they complete it. And, you know, it's a very common experience for home workers to 
be told, no, that work's not good enough, you have to do it again, or I'm going to deduct from your pay. So, you know, they're very vulnerable to the middle person who gives them the work. But that's the reality day-to-day of home workers. And the other area I've been working in is in um, garment supply chains. Again, and a lot of this work I've been um, based in Tamil Nadu and South India. And in um, the factories, there's been um, a, 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 a scheme to recruit poor um, women from really out of villages in the area on what they call it, um, a Samangali scheme. Now, Samangali scheme is a scheme that workers are, young women are recruited to work in the factory on a three-year scheme. So they get a, a small amount of money each month and they're promised the balance in three years' time at the end of their, of their bonded labour period. And the whole meaning of Samangali is about dowry. So they're they're encouraged to say, well, you can work for a little bit each month and then at the end of three years, you'll have the money for your dowry. So this is kind of, again, a very, you know, um, um, traditional and um, gendered view of women and work that they deliberately recruit these really um, young, impoverished um, women from very remote areas to come and work in these factories, in textile mills and garment factories. And then they're told, um, well, you don't need, you know, you don't, basically you're bonded, you're indentured for this period. And if they leave beforehand, often they don't get their payment and whatever. Compounded by this, they're forced to live in these dormitories where often within the premises of the mill or the factory and um, they're required to work anytime the employer wants them because they're, they're there just, you know, 50 metres away from the workplace. So there's been a, a lot of global campaigns to focus on the conditions of workers in these kind of circumstances, probably um, less so on home-based workers, but really I, I focused on making brands accountable for the consequence of their pricing, purchasing practices, um, for workers in this context in South India. So, I mean, I think, you know, it, there's not always a big difference in terms of formal or informal. I think they merge over a lot in terms of the conditions of workers across these different types of work scenarios. What we do, what's very clear is they're exploitative wherever they are, um, whether we call them informal or formal. I think the difference for informal workers is they're often not even recognised as there. They're not even on the radar in terms of regulation, in terms of recognition, in terms of um, any, you know, formal rights being acknowledged by the employers, by the brands. So, um, yeah, a lot of these kind of um, poor practices of corporations um, extend to a whole range of different levels in the supply chain or tiers. So, for example, in tier ones where they directly contract with someone and they've got workers in the factory, it's, it's a little bit more above board. But as those suppliers contract down the supply chain, we see an erosion of work conditions, an erosion of rights. 
Um, it's still the same supply chain, it's still the same global corporation sourcing, but the impact is um, significant in terms of where people are positioned in that supply chain, the top or the bottom, and the consequence for workers, women workers, is that they're predominantly, they're at all levels of those supply chains. Um, but the degree of rights and recognition and capacity to collectively organise is, is substantially different. Could you explain about collective organisation? Yes, yeah, so of course, you know, a very big focus of my work is also how do you support vulnerable women workers to collectively organise in unions, in other cooperatives and other kind of labour NGOs. And this is really difficult because what we've seen in examples I've talked about in the leather footwear home workers, there, the union suppression uh, is very intense in different, different countries, many countries. So it's very difficult for the unions to have rights and to implement them, to make contact with workers, for example, in the example I gave in terms of the workers kept in the dormitories within the factory premises, unions can't even reach the workers to recruit them. So there's a whole, there's layers of suppression of unions and the right freedom of association. Um, and there's also a lot of unions are made up of men and haven't come round to organising women workers in these sectors. So there's, there's different layers, I guess, of um, rights and how women are able to build collective organisation, to build um, a role as leaders, to build their own capacity, to form leaders in from their own group and to, you know, get a seat at the table, to negotiate, to get recognition through the government, through regulation, through local employers and global brands that's you know ultimately what they need to achieve but the road to there is you know shrewing with many barriers for them to achieve this it's not impossible there's lots of examples around the world of really amazing organizing by informal workers but it's really difficult very difficult to maintain an organization just through worker dues because their work's very vulnerable so traditional union methods aren't always suitable. They have to try different ways of doing it. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, this is really challenging and they need as much support as possible. So I'd really urge people um, listening to think about, well, how can you support vulnerable workers in their, to collectively organise? It's not just about you know, marginalised workers in India giving, you know, how do we support them? How do we support the organisations and they're helping them build capacity um, as um, to build their own unions. So one example is I've been working with one organisation in India called Sivideep and they spent 10 years as an NGO supporting garment workers to build their own garment union and now that union has become independent and very successful. So we're using this similar model to develop a union representation for the home workers in that in that area so it's possible but difficult and so I would really yeah encourage people to support groups that are working towards women leading and representing themselves in unions and other types of collective organization 
um, not just about charity and donations. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Um, I think that's, you know, I don't know if I've covered everything, but I, look, I think it's, you know, I think it's hard for people to conceptualise informal work because, you know, in Australia it's a different system. But, you know, if you think many people are working informally um, around the world um, and there's kind of this concept now of decent work, how do we build decent work conditions, you know, recognising legislation, recognised in terms of corporate accountability and making sure those rights are, you know, attributed and provided to workers. Um, so I think that's something we need to, you know, build into our consciousness. In some, you know, casual workers and day workers and whatever are a really significant part of our workforce and we need to be more aware of them and more supportive of them in terms of um, rights and collective representation. Yeah, no, that sounds really good. Oh, thanks so much for coming onto the program today. Thank you so much, Beth. Great to talk to you. I've been speaking with Dr. Annie Blaney about women in the informal world of work. Well, thanks so much for your company and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.